word with you from week to week, I am often reminded of the sacred responsibility that is mine and also the challenge that every preacher is faced with when he comes to bring the word of the Lord. That challenge was expressed by the late, great Dr. Lockridge, a wonderful preacher of God's word, who believed that a good sermon will always do four things to the hearers. Number one, good preaching should warm your heart. Good preaching should stretch your mind. Good preaching will also tan your hide. Sorry about that. But God does say in his word that the word of God is profitable for reproof. We don't often like reproof, but reproof is healthy for us. But finally and ultimately, it will provoke our will, or it should provoke our will. So if I do my job well, it means that the messages that I share with you on Sunday morning will inspire you, instruct you, correct you, and ultimately challenge you to change. For what good is it if we hear the word and don't do it? But let me remind you this morning that when I preach to you, I am preaching always first to myself. So never feel like, oh, pastor has an axe to grind. And uh, he's saying that to me today. Well, you know the old expression, if the shoe fits, then wear it, right? But if the shoe doesn't fit, then you have nothing to feel bad about. And if you feel bad, let it be a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. Because as the expression goes, we can become bitter or better. And sadly, in the church of Jesus Christ, how many people get bitter? Oh, the pastor offended me. But if we receive the word as coming from God and not from man, then we say, Lord, thank you for loving me enough to correct me so that I can amend my ways and be more pleasing to you. And as I'm more pleasing to you, my heart is more open and receptive to receive all that you want to pour into my life. And so having said that this morning, you can understand why I feel and confess to you that I don't believe that I have what it takes to stand behind the sacred desk and to bring the word of God to you. And therefore, I desperately covet the prayers of God's people because I know that through your prayers, as the Apostle Paul said, helping us by prayer, together with the enablement and the anointing of the Holy Spirit, God's word can run swiftly and be glorified. Because God promises in his word that his Word will not return void, but that reason, that purpose for which he has established that it be sent, that it will accomplish God's objectives. And so, Lord, this morning we do pray that the Holy Spirit would anoint these lips of clay, give words that only come from your heart and your mouth and use me only as the human instrument that communicates what you would have your people hear today. Anoint every ear that they might hear what the Spirit is speaking to the church and be glorified as your word runs swiftly, enters into our heart, and does a good work for your honor and glory. And all of God's people said, Amen, Amen. amen. Well, we got through Psalm 91. It took us a long time <laughs> because of all of the uh, circumstances that surrounded <clears throat> those weeks. But I'm very excited this morning uh, to launch a new sermon series. And I've wrestled for a long time with what that would be. And you see on the screen that I landed in a place that I would never have expected to land. And that is in the book of Hebrews, which is a much, much neglected book of the New Testament, and I do want to share with you, not at this moment, but later in the message, why I chose Hebrews. But first, for uh, those of you who are all good Bible students and are expecting an introduction 
to this book, which lays groundwork for us. We're going to go through some of what you usually expect when you begin with a new book of the Bible. Authorship. Who wrote the book of Hebrews? Now, if you're familiar at all with the New Testament, you know that no author's name is associated with the book of Hebrews. However, down through the centuries, and actually up until the 16th century, what's that, 1,600 years since Jesus? And just about that many years since the book was actually written, all Bible scholars and church fathers believe that the Apostle Paul wrote the book. But then somehow in the 16th century, Eusebius, another Bible scholar, came up with some ideas that made people stop and think, was it really the Apostle Paul? And actually, in the 1611 version of the King James Bible that we're all familiar with, we all, some of us who grew up in the church grew up with the 1611 version. It didn't look like that exactly. It wasn't in that font, but basically in pretty much the same language that the heading of Hebrews is the epistle of Paul, the apostle to the Hebrews. But the scholars began to question, is it really the apostle Paul? And for two main reasons. First of all, that Hebrews and the way that it was written and the style in which it was written is so uncharacteristic of how the Apostle Paul wrote his letters. First of all, in every one of his 13 epistles, you will see Paul, the Apostle, as he identifies himself right in the first verse, in his salutation. Paul the Apostle, so there's no doubt in anyone's mind where this letter came from, who wrote it. It was the Apostle Paul. So what you're seeing on the screen is typical of all 13 letters. But somehow in Hebrews, Paul did, if it was indeed Paul, he did not express his salutation with his name. And secondly, all of Paul's letters, and in fact all of the New Testament, was written in what we call the Koine Greek, which was the common language of the people. But the book of Hebrews was written in classical Greek. That was the more sophisticated, the more academic language that the aristocracy or the academia would write in and speak in. It was considered, the book of Hebrews, as the literary masterpiece of the New Testament. And by the way, isn't it amazing that, as I mentioned, the rest of the New Testament was written in the Koine Greek, which was the common language of the people, and that God would want his word written, for the most part, in the language of the street people so that they could read and understand his word. And that's not to say that Hebrews cannot be read and understood, but it's on a little bit of a higher uh, academic or intellectual level, especially in the style in which it was written. And so the scholars down through the years have conjectured, who did write the book of Hebrews then? Some think it was Luke. Remember Dr. Luke? He was an intellect. Apollos, who was so eloquent. Barnabas. Some even suggested Priscilla. But I wonder why we argue so much over who was the author of the book of Hebrews. For do we not believe that all scripture is God-breathed? God used human instruments, but all scripture, whether it's David, whether it's Moses, whether it's Ezekiel, whether it's Paul, whether it's Peter, whether it's John, it's all from the mouth and the heart of God. He used a human pen to write it, but they are his words and really it's irrelevant to have to know who wrote it and there have been some great preachers like Spurgeon down through the years who have insisted that it's the Apostle Paul and as we go through this series I've always personally believed it was the Apostle Paul so you'll have to forgive me if from time to time I might say and as Paul said in chapter so and so verse so and so but we cannot be sure exactly that it was the Apostle Paul. It's irrelevant to know the author because 
we do not want to be distracted from the theme of Hebrews. And that theme is the preeminence of Christ. And that's where our focus needs to be. If we see anything else in the word than the Lord Jesus Christ, he is the living word who is revealed in the written word who reveals the heart of the Father. And anything that distracts us from that, you know, one of the things that really blows my mind is there are people that have every imaginable degree in understanding the Bible, but it's all intellectual and none of it has transferred down to here because the word of God that is black letters on white paper, if it doesn't become a living word, it is of no value other than academic value. But what good is academic value? It increases knowledge that puffs up but does not increase our knowledge of God. It does not increase our understanding of God. It does not increase our ability to walk with God. So the word of God is to equip us to know God, to walk with him, and to love him better and better. So why was Hebrews written? Specifically, every book in the Bible has a purpose, and, or when, I should say when, I'm getting ahead of myself, when was the book of Hebrews written? It was, I just want to give this to those of you who are the real Bible students that need to know this because when you study any book in the Bible, when was it written? Well, all Bible scholars agree that probably between 60 and 70 AD, and they come to that conclusion because in Hebrews we read about the temple that was still active, and we know that in 70 AD the general Titus from the Roman uh, high, uh, monarchy, or should I say dictatorship, or What's the word I'm looking for? You know what I'm talking about. He was a despot who came into Jerusalem and besieged the city and destroyed Solomon's temple, which was a great grief to all Jewish people. But did not Jesus speak about not one stone being left on another? And their ears were deaf. They could never believe that anything could ever happen to that temple. But Jesus knew that in 70 AD it would be completely destroyed. And that's why he cried over Jerusalem because the hearts of his people were hardened. And they went through religious rituals, but they did not know the Lord. For whom was this epistle written? The answer is very clear in the title of the book. It was written to the Hebrews. Now we know that uh, so many letters and all the letters in uh, the uh, New Testament were written either to specific churches as in the church of Corinth, the church of Thessalonica. But then there are some letters like Hebrews that were called general letters and especially the book of Hebrews was not written to a specific church and it was not written to a specific individual as was, for example, Timothy, written by Paul to his son Timothy or to Titus. This was written to the general community of Jews who believed in Jesus and were living in Jerusalem. And so now we come to why was this book written? What was the purpose for this book? Now we mentioned that this community of Jewish believers that were living in Jerusalem, whom today we would call Messianic Jews, they still embraced their Jewish ethnicity, they still embraced everything that was Jewish, but now they heard about Jesus, they heard the gospel, and they believed that Jesus was the Son of God. But can you imagine being a Jew who embraced the Hebrew religion who believed that Moses was this awesome man who needed to be revered because through him came the law. And those first five books of the Bible were treasured above all else. That was the word of the Lord. They revered that word and they revered Moses who was the instrument who, came, who brought that word. So can you imagine now coming to hear about the gospel and hearing in any way, shape, or form that all that you're going through now is no longer necessary because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. It's all about Jesus. 
If you know Jesus, you have everything. So there had to be confusion in their minds. What, what are we to do with these traditions that we held so dear that we religiously observed all of our lives? So, so many converted Jews who came to Christ were still observing the rituals and the traditions of their religion. And so the writer of the Hebrews by the Spirit realized he had to make them understand that as much as they revered these traditions and these rituals and the Old Testament law, that Jesus was better. Jesus was far superior to all of it. Jesus was supreme over all of it. One of the keys in the book of Hebrews, one of the key words is better. It's mentioned 13 times. And in each instance, it is showing the superiority and the supremacy of Jesus Christ. His salvation that he brings in lieu of the Hebrew system of religion that said you had to kill the lamb on the day of Passover. So through the blood of the shedding of that lamb, you can have remission for sins. When Jesus shed his blood once and for all, and it, it's efficacious for all of time and for all eternity. Another word that is frequently used in Hebrews is perfect. That word is used 14 times. And the, the writer to the Hebrews is wanting these Jewish Christians to understand that they have a perfect salvation. Nothing about the law can enhance it in any way. Nothing about the law is required uh, for them to do in order to earn favor with God. Jesus Christ and the salvation that he brings is a complete and a perfect salvation because he was the perfect sin sacrifice on the cross. And so as you read the letter uh, to the Hebrews, the author is so relentless in his effort to reveal Jesus, greater than the prophets, greater than the angels, greater than Moses, greater than the Levitical priesthood. In fact, he argues that all of the ceremonies, all of the sacrifices, all of the rituals of the Old Testament, they're only a foreshadowing or what we would call a type of what was to come. Now, who wants the shadow when you can have the reality? <laughs> the shadow is, is just a shadow. It's not the real thing. It doesn't have the real substance. It doesn't have the reality. Jesus and Jesus alone is that reality. Therefore, he is superior to all of it. Now also, these Jewish believers were starting to sense that, aha, now that I came to Jesus, people don't like me anymore. The high priest and those who serve in the temple are, are looking down at me. They're, they're ridiculing me. They're persecuting me. And in addition to that, it seemed that now even the government, the Roman Empire through Nero, was very much disliking Christians. And their question is, do I really need to openly confess and boldly declare that I'm a Christian? Because if I do, is it going to cost me something? Am I going to have to suffer for the sake of Christ? Well, if they knew what Jesus said, <laughs> you will suffer persecution if you call on the Lord. You will be hated by those who don't know Jesus, and we're living in a world and in a country that more and more is looking down on Christians and Christianity. What's happened recently just in the schools? Parents who spoke out 
against CRT who are speaking out about the debauchery in how their young children are learning about sexuality and not only sexuality but perverted sexuality and they're speaking out against it and all of a sudden the Department of Justice is saying they're domestic terrorists for speaking out about Christian conviction speaking out against things that are not in alignment with the word of the Lord. That's the day and age in which we are living. So the word of God is very, very relevant to us. And as we go through the book of Hebrews, I pray that we will be encouraged as the writer to Hebrews wanted to encourage the Jewish Christians in that first century to know that even though they might be and will be persecuted, they need to persevere they need to remain steadfast they need to remain strong in their commitment to Jesus Christ now we know a full-scale persecution did not happen as yet when the book of Hebrews was written because the I was ready to say Paul said you've not yet resisted unto blood in other words you didn't have to lay your life down you know people are just talking bad about you buck up be strong be a soldier for Jesus, accept what's coming your way, and count it all joy. Isn't that what the Word of God says? Why do we get down in the mouth when people say, look at that Christian? We should rejoice. Do you know what? We are identifying with the Lord Jesus Christ who hung on that cross in open shame for no sin that he committed, but for your sin and my sin. And he says, if you will be ashamed of me, then I will be ashamed of you. And I don't know about you, I don't want to be in that position where Jesus says, I don't know Paul Spuler, he was ashamed of me while he walked on that earth. I don't know him. So the purpose of this letter was to exhort these Jewish believers, persevere, Face the persecution. Don't, whatever you do, don't give up on Jesus, but keep on keeping on. So it does have relevance for us today. And you might be wondering why would you choose Hebrews as a book that we should be studying on Sunday mornings? Because we're facing some of the same things that the Christians in that first century faced. And there's another reason that I feel led to deal with the book of Hebrews. And in part, I owe it to the reading of Andrew Murray. Do you remember Andrew Murray, that saint of God who wrote 125 years ago these words? The biggest problem that pastors find in caring for their flock is their lack of wholeheartedness, steadfastness, perseverance and progress in the Christian life. He further observed that many believers seem to come to a standstill and they make no progress in their Christian life. Now think about that. That there are Christians who accept Jesus into their heart they do all the religious things they come to church and maybe they even pay their tithes. But as far as a heart connection with God, as far as growing in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, they're where they were when they first got saved. Oh, yeah, 10 years ago, I asked Jesus to forgive me for all of my sin, and I accepted him, and I received him into my heart. But what has happened with your progress in your relationship with Jesus? What happened to what Peter says, grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But sadly, he also claimed that there were others that don't even remain stationary. But instead, they become indifferent and they even turn their back to the world. Turn back to the world, excuse me, and the pleasures of sin while still feigning to be disciples of Jesus Christ. Now, for a long while in this church, those of you who have been with us for a while, know in some of the epistles that we were dealing with, 
we were talking about the distinction between church people and kingdom people. They sit on the same pews, but there's a world of difference between the two. Church people are those who have all the, the religious trappings that make it appear that they have a relationship with God. But kingdom people live for one thing. They live in submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ, who is the king of their life. They don't just worship him in church on Sunday and sing, you are Lord, you're my Lord. You've risen from the dead and you're my Lord. Now, Monday morning when they get up to go to work, they're still saying, Jesus, you are my Lord. I surrender to your authority. So whatever you will allow to come into my life today, I say, your kingdom come, your will be done on this earth, in this earth. You know, we talk about on this earth. And now I loved Shauna's prayer this morning. We want to see the kingdom of God come into our democracy. We want to see the kingdom of God come into America through politicians who honor God and honor the word of God. But how about the word of the kingdom of God coming into our lives? This earth, this clay that someday is going to be returned to clay but in it right now is housed the spirit that through this body we are to be living a life that is pleasing and honoring and glorifying to God. Is his kingdom coming? Is his kingdom coming? That means death to all that I am, all that I have, all that I want, all that I think, all that I feel. And that obviously is a progression. You do not arrive there overnight. And in fact, as long as we are in this earth, we will never fully arrive. But that does not excuse us to think, well, I'm just flesh and God understands I'm flesh and I'm human and I have these feelings and I'm allowed to have these feelings. I'm allowed to hold on to this bitterness. I'm allowed to feel a little jealous. I mean, after all, there's, there's blood flowing through my veins. I, I, I can lust and we make excuses and rationalizations for all the carnal things that we engage in and indulge in and mindsets that are contrary to the word of God. The kingdom of God is righteousness. There's no unholy thing in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is peace. If you're living in frustration and anxiety and in fear and mistrust, that's not the kingdom of God. We need to pray, Lord, let your kingdom come. Because when his kingdom comes, there will be righteousness, there will be peace, and there will be joy in the Holy Ghost. Some Christians just have such a sour puss on their face and how do we expect to win others to Jesus if they see nothing in us that they can desire but there's something that is so attractive about a person who has a smile on their face what is it about you Edgar that you're always smiling what is it about you Chad and Wendy that I always see a smile on your face well it's Jesus who is on the inside of me and Jesus Jesus the Son of God was a man who walked the earth full of joy even though he was a man of sorrow he was still full of the joy of the Lord because when you are doing the will of God there's joy in your heart. I'm not talking about hilarity. I'm talking about a joy. I'm talking about a peace that only comes from knowing God and walking with God. So what was Andrew Murray saying here? He's saying there are some Christians who actually backslide. And have you ever heard that term? We used to talk about it all the time. Growing up in the church, oh, so-and-so's a backslider. Well, that meant they just completely flat out left Jesus. They went back to the world. They did the things they did before they came to Jesus. They're back on drugs, back on alcohol, back on living a promiscuous life. That's backsliding. But then there are still church folk who attend services. They honor God with their lips, but because their hearts are far from God, he weeps even though there was a time when they were on fire for God. And this was Andrew Murray's assessment of Christians 125 years ago. 
before there was the internet and all the sin that that brings. Before there were a lot of other things that, that make this world because iniquity in the last days does increase and abound. And what is happening in our world with the increase of iniquity that church people who are not fervently in love with Jesus and who have not set their gaze upon him as being better and superior and more glorious than anything in this world or of this world, then they are easily, little by little by little, led astray. And then they wake up one day and realize, I used to have fire in my heart for Jesus. Now, I don't even want to go to church anymore. And speaking of going to church, look, look how Christians view church in the day and age in which we live. It used to be when I was growing up, see, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm an old man now. I have a hard time reckoning with that because I was just 40 yesterday. But when I was growing up, I mean, it was just a given. It's not like it is today. You know, on Pastor Appreciation Sunday, I'm so grateful. This church was full. The next Sunday, almost half of the number of people were here. And you never know on one Sunday to the next. Sometime I see large swaths of red and I think, where, where are all the people that were here last week? You know, when I was growing up, there were only two excuses to miss church. And that was death or the ICU. And if those two were not a factor, then somehow, some way, you were in the house of the Lord. And yet today, we're living in a time when Christians think nothing of missing church. Now, I'm not suggesting that there are not legitimate reasons why there are times we cannot be in church. But the thing that I'm trying to point out is so many Christians don't have the heart of David who was passionate about the opportunity to be in the house of the Lord. Yet we could sit on our couch now and web stream a service and enjoy it. Yeah, but there is nothing to be compared to being in the house of the Lord, worshiping together with God's people, encouraging one another, blessing one another. I was so blessed this morning that a brother walked into my office and shared a word with me that so encouraged my heart. I could not get that if I were not in church and if he were not in church. And yet, we just minimize the importance of being in the house of the Lord. I don't know if any of you saw the uh, church sign this past week or one of the things that we had up there. Church should be your excuse for missing everything else. Yet, what's the story today? Everything else becomes our excuse for missing church. And again, I understand the legitimacy of times when we can't be here I mean, Kathy and I had COVID. We couldn't be here for two weeks. Our heart broke over that, but that was our reality. We, we could not be here. Furthermore, I don't advocate coming to church just because you need to come to church as a good Christian. Because guess what? Church will save no one. And when you stand before the Lord and he says, depart from me, I never knew you, you're not going to be able to say, but Jesus, don't you remember? I was at High Street Worship Center every Sunday. I, I even put money in the offering. Depart from me, I never, salvation doesn't come through any religious good works. The reality is, as I mentioned, if we love God, the pastor should not need to prod or beg. I shouldn't have to be writing people during the week saying we missed you. We hope to see you this Sunday. Because people should have that desire in their heart 
to be in the house of the Lord because they love God and they love to be with God's people. And I just want to applaud those of you who are sitting here. You know who you are. Your heart is right before God. I see you here faithfully, week in and week out. You don't need to be prodded. You don't need the pastor following up with you. Where are you and where have you been? You know, there are some people we've not seen since COVID hit. That's going on two years now. And tell me they don't go anywhere else. I know the excuse is, well, I'm afraid I I can't be near people. Well, thank God. Some of us caught COVID in this church, but we didn't lose one person to COVID. The Lord was our keeper. Yes, amen. If we're really disciples of Jesus Christ, Do we heed the admonition of God's word? Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the habit is of some, but rather encourage one another and all the more. See, when I was growing up, you just went to church. You didn't even question it. You just went to, it was Sunday, you went to church. But now, all these years later, the word of God is saying all the more. We are so much closer to the coming of the Lord. And what are we to do because Jesus is coming again? We need to prepare our hearts. And that is something that needs to be a focus of constant attention that we are giving ourselves to the Lord. We're giving ourselves to every opportunity we have to read the word, to pray, to fellowship with other believers, to be in the house of the Lord, to be encouraged instead of moving in the opposite direction. And that's the church of Jesus Christ in this 21st century, and especially in this Western Hemisphere. Do we understand, and I know I'm preaching to the choir because you're here today, so please forgive me, but maybe people are gonna listen to this message through the week need need to hear this. But do you ever think, "By, by my missing church today, without a good reason, how, how's that impacting the rest of the body? Or how's that impacting me? What am I going to miss out on today? God, stir within us a greater desire, a greater passion for the superiority of Jesus. That's the only reason to be in church. Jesus is superior. Jesus is supreme. And I want to gather with the saints of God to worship him in spirit and in truth. So church, please forgive me for that rabbit trail. And you're wondering, what in the world does that have to do with the book of Hebrews? But Andrew Murray believed this is the single cure that these complacent, lackadaisical, lethargic Christians need. It's a good dose of the book of Hebrews. Because Hebrews does two things for us. One, it reminds us of the superiority of Jesus. And two, it warns us of the seriousness of becoming complacent. And as we get through Hebrews, we're going to look at four stern warnings. They are warnings against backsliding. That word sounds drastic. I'm not backslidden. But do we realize how subtle this process is? You know, the challenge, the overarching challenge in Hebrews is found in chapter 3 and verse 14. That we must hold fast the beginning firm to the end. Do you remember when you first came to Jesus? Do you remember the passion? Do you remember the fire? Do you remember how you couldn't wait to get to church? You didn't even get here early. You'd wonder when the doors were going to open again because when you came here, you experienced the glory of God. There's nothing in this world that can compare to experiencing the manifest presence of God. Whether that's in in loud praises or whether it's in silence. I want you to know that there have been times when I've been in church services where you could hear a pin drop, but I was undone in the presence of God. 
And it was like I dare even lift my head because of the weighty glory of God being in his church. God desiring to meet with his people. God desiring to do a deeper work. You know, sometimes it's all about just being happy and praising God. But sometimes God says, give me an opportunity. Wait on me and let me do a deeper work. Let me bring a deeper revelation. So hold firm, hold fast, the beginning, firm to the end. Let me read that verse in the King James Version. For we are made partakers of Christ. How do you know if you're a Christian? If we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. What's he saying there? Jesus I believe, as Paul said to Timothy, that what I've committed to you, you are able to keep until that day when I stand before you. You will be faithful to perfect that which concerns me. And as I continue to draw near to you, you will continue to draw near to me. I will grow closer and closer. I will go deeper and deeper. The revelation will become greater and greater. Now listen to that same verse in the Living Translation. For if we are faithful to the end, trusting God just as firmly as when we first believed, we will share in all that belongs to Christ. Do you know what belongs to Christ? You talk about wanting to get rich. There are riches beyond anything we could even ask, think, or even imagine. They are at our disposal, but because of the lack of hunger, because of the lack of initiative, because of the lack of a desire, because of allowing complacency and lethargy and apathy to enter into our hearts. Yes, we came to church, but how many of us came with a prepared heart? How many of us came with a heart that says, I'm here to praise God, I'm here to say, my gaze on Jesus. I'm here to receive from him. As I minister praise and worship to him, he will minister to my heart. Holding fast the beginning, firm to the end. Because in the words of the old song, it's not the first mile that's so important. It's the last mile when day is done. How many Christians, I wonder, will stand before the Lord on that day having had a glorious, miraculous transformation that came to them through the gospel and by the Holy Spirit. And yet they're going to stand before God ashamed because of their apostasy. Jesus said, only he that endures to the end, the same shall be saved. See, this endurance is first against the temptation to sin and to indulge so that I could satisfy my flesh, but it's also the perseverance and the endurance when persecution and hardship and heartache comes and the devil whispers in your ear, you've been so faithful to God, give up on God. What's he doing for you? He's not answering your prayer. He's allowing you to be sick. He's allowing you to go through this. He, he's, he's allowing you to suffer. He doesn't love you. The message and the burden of the message of Hebrews is persevere under the hardship. Endure. Stand strong. Don't let go of your commitment. Hold fast. And as you hold fast to him, he will hold fast to you. The only way that we can be prevented from Allowing that apostasy to take place is to lay a firm grasp onto who Christ is. And too many Christians believe that what they received when they got saved is all that they need. No, that, that was just the entrance. That's like a baby who's drinking formula. When, when they get to be a few months old, they need that rice cereal, right? And then, then they need the jarred baby foods and then they start eating table food you don't stay on formula all your life. And yet some Christians are content with just the, the little bit of knowledge they received when, oh, I, I received Jesus. I even got baptized in water. 
Are we growing in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior? Are we growing in holiness as he would have us grow? Are we becoming spiritually mature and growing up into Christ? Not growing up into a church, not growing up into this person that I really admire and respect. You know, we could even get distracted in that way. We get so focused on, oh, that person is just the nearest thing to God that I know. Jesus is better. Because the arm of flesh will always fail. And let me tell you straight, church, don't you ever look at this pastor as being someone that is a little higher than you, a little better. I know I'm more responsible before the Lord because I'm standing here. And you know what? When I stand before the throne, I'm going to be held more accountable because I was the one who taught the word. So to him that is given much, much shall be required. But our focus must ever and always be on the Lord Jesus Christ for he alone is better he alone is superior he alone is supreme over everyone and anything else in all of this world I want to close with this this morning studying Hebrews together is much like the invitation of Jesus when he called his inner circle Peter James and John and we read he took them with him up to a very high mountain. A very high mountain. And in that place, the Bible says he was transfigured before them. Now there are stories in the Bible that become so commonplace that I believe we really don't grasp or wrap our minds and hearts around the reality of what took place. Now understand, Peter, James, and John were like buddies with Jesus. Yes, they, they recognized him as Lord, they acknowledged him as the Messiah, but he was a human who had their same emotions, their same physical needs, he ate with them, he laughed with them, he cried, I mean, he was, he was their friend. But on this mountaintop, he is transfigured. And the Bible tells us in Matthew, his appearance changed dramatically in their presence. His face shone with heavenly glory, clear and bright like the sun. And his clothing became as white as light. And together with him appeared Moses and Elijah. Can you imagine having that experience? Well, does the artist depict them falling back at the majesty of what they are beholding? And I pray that as we approach this epistle, that God would take us up with himself to a high mountain. The word of God is a high mountain. It is not black letters on white paper. It is the voice of God to our hearts that is calling us higher. It is the voice of God to our hearts that is calling us to leave the, the, the things of this world, to, to neglect and reject and ignore those things that are trying to pull us away and to remain steadfast and to keep climbing and to keep moving in a direction that draws us closer to God and to prepare our hearts for that life-transforming vision of seeing Jesus for who he really is. Jesus becomes such a commonplace name. Yeah, Jesus died on the cross for me, and I love him, and he loves me, and he's with me, and when I have a problem, I, Jesus, help me. But do we really know him in all of his glory? Do we know him in his supremacy? Do we know him in his superiority? Those things that have captured your heart, the Spirit of God is saying to you today, Jesus is better. Jesus is better. May our hearts respond with, yes, I want to pursue Jesus. 
I want to obey the first commandment, which is to love the Lord my God with all of my heart, with all of my mind, with all of my soul, and with all of my strength. And here's the best part. When we gaze upon his beauty as being better than any other attraction, any other desire, any other want, any other wish, as we behold him, we will become like him and he will change us. Isn't this glorious? He will change us from glory to glory even as by the Spirit of the Lord. It may not be a mount of transfiguration where we're going to shine like the sun, but there is going to be another measure of glory. That's the walk of the believer. It is a progression of a continual, increasing glory that God wants to reveal in us and through us. Will we respond to him and say, yes, Lord, that's my desire today. Let's bow our heads in prayer. And I want us to close our service this morning with an old hymn. I, I have to tell you, I'm enjoying this opportunity to introduce some old hymns. Some of you have never, ever heard them. I grew up with them. I mean, I know the words by heart because we would sing them over and over and over again. This one is more about Jesus. And it expresses the desire that what I have is, is not enough. <laughs> you know, there's something amazing about knowing Jesus and loving Jesus. That when you taste of him, it thrills your heart, but it doesn't really satisfy your hunger. It's like, I need more. This is so good. I need more. And that's what the Lord wants to do for all of us. Help us to taste and see. But what the Lord is looking for today is desire. What the Lord is looking for today is commitment. What the Lord is looking for today is a heart that is solely after him. I was reading in the Psalms this week, and it grabbed my heart where the psalmist prayed, Give me an undivided heart that I might fear your name. You know, we don't fear God as we, we ought because we, our heart's divided. Oh, yeah, we love God with this much, but with this much, we love this and we love that, and, we lo and it takes up so much of our time. It consumes our thought. It makes us happy. It makes us angry. It makes us lustful. It, it does all of those things that aren't good for advancing the kingdom. But when we set our hearts on him with an undivided heart, he will fulfill his promise of transforming us from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. So come with me back a few decades, and let's make believe we're in the first Italian Christian Pentecostal church of Camden, New Jersey, and we're singing this hymn together, more, more about Jesus. Amen. Let's stand and sing it and make it the prayer of our hearts.